You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Just a brief word of clarification. Um, I'm aware that in teaching, whenever you teach, you always know that there's going to be uh, miscommunication, whether it's because I say it poorly or you hear it poorly, and the interchange just makes it all go wild sometimes. Um, and one of the benefits of, of, of hearing back a little bit is you tend to hear as I teach new material, and this is new material for me, first time I've taught this in a formal setting, um, you tend to hear some of the ways that you might be misunderstood. And let me just say something that was brought to me during the break to clarify a point. When I talk about speaking with courage into chaos, I don't want to be heard as saying that, well, just do something and don't be a wimp. That's not what I'm saying. When I talk about speaking with courage into chaos, I'm not saying, well, just open your mouth and blubber anything. Who cares, just as long as you do something. Um, you know, maybe, maybe what Adam should have done when the serpent was talking to Eve was not to, you know, say, now, hang on a minute, hon, we're going to deal with this thing. Maybe he should have walked over and said, let's go for a walk. Maybe speaking into chaos means not saying a, a, a word. Maybe it isn't actual speech that I'm talking about. But maybe it has more to do with your intentions in terms of the energy of your own being as you're involved with the situation. Is there a situation that you know in the core of your being you're simply not going to interface with? Then you're not speaking. Even if you're talking your head off. But is there a situation where you're saying, I really don't know what to do, but I'm not going to back away from this. My soul is going to move toward it. It may mean I won't talk for three weeks to my wife about the situation, but I'm not, I'm not backing away that's what I think is wise. And therefore, you don't talk about a problem. You don't bring up every problem and attention between friends. I don't think that means at every moment you bring it up and say, we're having tension, let's talk about it. Sometimes wisdom means that you don't say a word about it, and maybe you never say a word about it. And I would call that speaking. So hear the word speaking as a metaphor. I'm talking about the energy, the direction of the energy of your being. Are you moving into a situation dealing with it, or are you freezing in the situation and saying, I won't deal with it, but I'll cover over my avoidance by talking up a blue streak, or by saying nothing, or whatever you do. If internally you're retreating, then no matter what you do with your mouth, you're not speaking. That's my understanding of speaking into the chaos of, of life. I don't see Don. Don, are you here? There he is. Good. The last section of our seminar, what can be done about it? We have about an hour. You'll notice the extensive notes. What were you expecting? A code? I haven't got a clue what to say. Let's go home. You make up your own minds. The big problem is, we just laughed about it, but it's a, it's a fact. There's not a code on how to recover our manhood. I have some thoughts. But if these thoughts get codified and become a rigid step-by-step -step system in somebody's mind, then you're going to miss the whole point of the day. Have you noticed how God has written his book? A lot of ambiguity to the text, isn't there? Different places. 
Can we say with clear, definitive, unmistakable authority, Adam was there when the serpent talked to Eve? No, we really can't. We can say a few things with clear, definitive authority. The Bible says Christ is God. I've got no problem with that. That's clear. A whole lot of things aren't clear. The Bible says we're all sinners. Unless we trusted Christ as our Savior, we're going to hell. That's clear. A lot of things are clear, but many more things aren't in the text. And I wonder if God is somehow calling forth our humanity in that process of writing a book like that. The Bible really is one big story. It's a love story that begins with a divorce and then shows how the heavenly suitor woos his bride back to himself and culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Stories have power. Today, as I've spoken with you for these six hours of seminar, I don't know if we had kept track of how much time I devoted to stories versus didactic teaching, what the percentage would be, but I would think of the, for every 60 minutes that I've been up here talking to you, probably over half of them were involved in telling stories. And my guess is, when you leave here today, that you're probably going to recall just a couple things. You're going to recall a couple phrases I've used a lot. You're going to recall the phrase living by code, I hope. You're going to recall the phrase of courageously speaking into chaos. And things like that are going to be in your mind. But I'll bet you out of the 15 stories I've told today, one or two of them are, are going to stick. And maybe the stories are going to have the most power. As you think about your own life when you and your wife have a big fight tonight. Or when Monday morning you walk in and You've lost your job. And next Wednesday when you get a biopsy that's not very good. You see, none of us none of us ever gets back in the garden until we get to heaven. My wife had surgery some months ago, eight months ago. She had a lump in her breast. And she's had several before and had them taken out, and they've all been okay lumps. Well, as the lumps continue in frequency, you tend to worry more. You all know what that's like. Well, the doctor had taken a needle biopsy, and we got the phone call, and she said the needle biopsy came back ambiguous. We're not sure. We don't think it's bad, but I need to go in and take it out. I can't let the lump stay there any longer, the surgeon said, a woman surgeon. We went into the hospital that morning, and it's going to be an outpatient thing. My wife is going to be in surgery for actually no more than half an hour of the actual surgical time. I remember sitting in the waiting room, the surgical waiting room with several other people whose relatives were being operated on that morning. I remember thinking to myself, the doctor's going to walk in here in a few minutes and she's going to tell me something that's going to be awful or something that's going to be wonderful. Well, she walked in and she said, um, when I saw her come in, you all know what I felt. Some of you have been there. You just snapped to and, and he, she said, um, very matter-of-fact surgeon, she said, she's fine, lump's okay, you can take her home in half an hour. And she walked out. And I wanted to kiss her. <laughs> I don't often want to kiss my doctor, but this was a woman. <laughs> Appropriate comment for a manhood seminar, but... <laughs> but I remember, I remember as she told me that something inside of me just wanted to sing... And I remember saying to myself a phrase along these lines, I'm back in the garden. Life's okay. 
Everything's wonderful. Rachel was fine. We recovered from the effects of the surgery in terms of the anesthesia. She was taking care of the post-op business. Took only a half an hour. It was a minor surgery from the medical point of view. And, and I took her out a half an hour later. And I was just so happy. I was delirious. And she was pretty happy. And, and I said, what do you want to do? And she was feeling good because this, the anesthesia still hadn't worn off. There was no pain. <laughs> And she said, you know, she knew she had me here, and so she exploited the opportunity. She said, let's go antique shopping. <laughs> and I tell you, I was so happy, it was fine with me, and I said, we'll go as long as you want. Hey, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, it's no problem. <laughs> and so we stopped, at, we stopped at one of her favorite antique stores, and I tell you, I said to her, anything you want in the store, I'll buy you, no problem. You want that hush, $2,000, you got it. You know, when you talk like that, they don't buy as much, at least. That's the way it works sometimes. Um, but it was just wonderful. And I tell you, I was the happiest guy on the face of the earth. I thought I was back in the garden. Two weeks later, Bill died. We're not back in the garden, folks. We're not going to get there. What's going to help us live as men in this world? Clear teaching? Sure, that has a place. But the clear teaching of Scripture is teaching which is always wrapped up in a story. I've asked a friend of mine, Don Hudson, to come and tell his story because I want us to hear stories today. Don Hudson is a good friend of mine. He has gone through our counseling program. He was an intern with us last year. and Now he's on faculty staff status with us at our program at Colorado Christian University. Don is married. He and his wife are expecting their first child. Don's a Bible scholar, high-level biblical scholar working on his doctorate. And he's been my consultant for this, for this seminar. He, have got, he and I have gotten together for a number of hours and thought a lot of these things through and a fair number of what you're hearing today. If you don't like it, blame him. Um, but Don has a bit of a story, and he's going to come up and take maybe 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, and just tell us a little bit about his story. And I want you to know the reason I'm asking Don to get up here. I just want you to hear uh, the enfleshment of some of what we've talked about. I've said to him, Don, don't work hard to make your story fit the teaching. Just tell your story. And we'll see something about the life of a man who I believe is, um, is connected in some good ways. Got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. You've got a long way to go. Don's got a long way to go, but he's but he's, he's getting there. He's moving along. I'm not holding him up as an example of all that should be, but I'm holding him up as an honest struggler who's on the journey toward authentic manhood. And he's going to come up now and share with you his story. Don, come up and do it. What was the code again for this? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. You're going to blame me too for everything that goes wrong. Uh, as Larry's mentioned, he's asked me to uh, come and tell a little bit about, about my story. I want to speak about two major areas this afternoon. Uh, first will be about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and the last, uh, the last point will be about the last five minutes. But as I've heard Larry teach and as Larry and I have gotten together and we've talked a little bit and we've discussed some of these things, I've done a little bit of teaching myself in a few areas in maleness. I've done some study um, and I've worked with some men, worked with some groups and so forth. 
One of the problems that I found was a lot of times it was easy for me to go to the concepts and I'd read Robert Bly and I'd, I'd really enjoy that and I'd write out the concepts and this would be a great theological point here and this would really look good in the Old Testament here and this would look good here there. Or I'd go to Sam Keen and that would be a real good concept there. I'd read all of these things for the different concepts. What I found, though, in my own life was, as you've heard these concepts today, and you've heard Larry talk about some of the own, his own struggles in his own life about maleness, it is also a very, very much an outgrowth of my own life. It is something that I've struggled with deeply, and if you took Larry's father and put him here, you'd have to take my father and put him here. He has a good father. He said, as he said, he's not perfect, but there are good, some good things about his father. There aren't that many good things about my father. And don't hear me saying today that I'm out to attack my parents. But I think it's been very important for me to look through my own life and say things really aren't what they should have been. And I've really missed a few things. But then now what do I do with that? I always began when I was five years old. When I was five, my father left. Uh, it was a divorce. And... All the way through my life, until up until about the age of 28, I always looked back on it and said, hey, it was no big deal. It really didn't bother me. I can handle this. Nobody's ever been there before. I can handle this. I can move on. But deep down, there was something that I was terrified to, to admit. And what I was terrified to admit was that I really never had somebody was there. And when I was five years old, that was a great transition in my life that in my mind devastated me. And also in my mind, I thought that destroyed me. And I remember that time very vividly. So for some of you folks that have been through the same things, you can look back and say, yeah, I remember those times. I can see images in my mind when I was five years old. I can't remember other things, but I can see images in my mind and say, I remember those so vividly. Well, of course, my dad left. My mom took us. And at that point, I was five. I was turning six. That September, I was going into school. And I remember this image very, very vividly. I remember going to school and everybody else was dealing with crayons and colors and I think ABCs, I forget what first grade was. But as I sat there in the class, I really felt like an adult man. I was six years old and I felt like, here you're worrying about colors and you're worrying about crayons and you're worrying about the ABCs and I'm worried about taking care of my mother. And all of a sudden I realized that it was time for me to grow up as a five-year-old kid, as a six-year-old kid, and step in and fill the void that my mother, that my dad had left. And that was a real transition in my life, and it really set me on a theme. Because here's how I handled it. First of all, there was something, and you understand I didn't think this through when I was six years old, but now as I've looked back on this, as I've thought through this, what I realized was, in many ways, I really didn't have what it took to be there for my mother. That's not an illegitimate statement. I never should have been what she wanted me to be or what I thought I should have been. And yet, on, on the, that was on the outside, that I really felt like I should be the kind of husband, and I hope you hear my words well, that I should have been the kind of husband that I should have been, been the kind of man that I should have been. My dad's gone, now I have to take over and take care of her. Internally, I knew that I really didn't have what it took that there really was something empty, and in my mind, my world had fallen apart. So I lived that way through the rest of my life. I accepted the Lord when I was eight, 
and I, I was raised by my mother. Uh, I told Larry just the other day, it wasn't until the, the age of 28 that I had a significant man in my life. Up until that time, and I don't say that all in a derogatory way, up until that time, the only people who were influential with me, the only people who were significant with me, were women. And they had an incredible impact on my life, and I thank God for that, but there was still something that was missing. So as I went high, with, through high school, by the time I was 16, I was working 35 hours a week. I bought my own new car. I, um, I, was, I, was doing, I was making good grades. I was preaching on Tuesday nights and Saturday nights. I was the president of my youth group. I was teaching a Sunday school class and could go on and on. And basically, you see the same side of really being alone, but also having to be successful. But inside, I felt like if you came and touched a few areas of my life, that I'd crumble. If you really saw me inside, you'd realize that I didn't have what it took, but it seemed like all the success over here was everything I could do to prove to myself that there was really something there. When I got into college, it got a little worse. I really believed that I was called to preach when I was 11 years old, so that's the direction I wanted to go. So I went to Bible uh, college, and I did well in there, and then I went to graduate school when I was 21. They asked me to teach Greek, and so I taught Greek, and I worked on my master's degrees. And the whole time, I was still struggling with this, this tension of being successful in the field that I wanted to be in. And yet, on the other side over here, realizing that I really don't have what it takes, and I feel like an imposter in everything that I do, even though I was successful. Well, fortunately, eventually dating came into my life, but here was my dating pattern. Because my dad had left, and in my mind, I had no security, no significance. I had none of these things that were very important. I couldn't really go to a man and say, that's the man I want to copy, and that's the man that stays in my life. And he has stayed in my life in a significant way. And so I felt a real vacuum there. I felt a real absence there. And as I started dating, I really wanted to date. I was very interested in girls. But I would date for six months. Things would go well. I'd talk a little bit about marriage. Things would go a little bit better. And then as a really, as a rubber met the road, eventually I would back out. And of course, I had a godly way of backing out. I always did this. Well, it's God's will because He showed me these doubts and I always had three doubts and the doubts would let me skip out and I was gone. I was out of there. And I'd date a girl for about six months and then I was gone and I'd turn to another girl and I'd date about six months. And understand, this whole time, I'm teaching in, in a uh, graduate school, and I'm teaching Bible, and during the weekends, I'm an assistant pastor, and you guessed it, I had a young married class. So within a year, I had 20 young marrieds, and it grew to 60, so I was very successful in my teaching, and yet, for two years that I taught, I dated four girls and broke up with four girls. And people came to me and said, you know, I mean, they, they were really afraid to say anything to me, but they would come to me and say, you know, uh, maybe something's wrong here. So, oh, no, 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 nothing's wrong. I haven't found the right one, or it's just my personality. And then a, finally, a, a friend of mine sat down with me, and this was before I had any exposure to the, Larry's program or some of his teaching. A friend sat down with me and said, you know, Don, everybody likes you, but nobody knows you. And I remember I had an answer. I was ready for him because I was very conscious of it. I thought, yeah, you're right, and that's my personality. Plus, if anybody knew me, then as soon as they knew me, they'd leave me just like my dad did. So, hey, I'm excused. It's okay. 
And this whole time, in my mind, I really thought, I'm supposed to get married, and this is awful, but God's called me to the ministry, so I want to go into the church. But of course you have to be what? To be a pastor. You have to be married. So my struggle was, I better get married if I'm ever going to go into the church. And, and I admit that's wretched. But that was my only reason. And yet I knew, as I saw myself as a married man, I looked down the road and saw myself as a married man, I couldn't do it. There was something within me that absolutely could not get married. I could be successful in teaching. I could be successful in scholarship. I could be successful in different things like this. When it came to marriage, that's when I panned out and I was gone. To the extent that when I came to, I went to Grace when Larry was teaching there at the time. And I went to Grace, I was working on my THM and Old Testament interpretation. And guess what I did again? I broke up with the girl that I was dating. I was more fortunate this time because she was an airline stewardess, so I only saw her on the weekends. But I met another girl that I was really interested in that is now my present wife. Her name is Suzanne. And I started dating her a little bit. And we dated about, I think it was exactly six months. It was about May. We'd already talked about marriage. We'd talked about engagement. And when it really got down to it, eventually I realized I just couldn't do it. But this time, I was 28 years old. This time, for the first time in my life, I called up a friend who was an intern of the program the year before or that year. It was the first time in my life that I had turned to another man and sought advice. And I thought, surely, here's what I'll do. I'll get on the phone. I'll tell him the three doubts. And I was really good because I could really reason these doubts out. I'll give him the three doubts. And those three doubts, once he hears those three doubts, that'll be it. He'll realize, boy, Don, you really got a case here. It's time to leave again. So I got on the phone. I, um, he's, he's a gentleman in, that's in the room uh, this afternoon who's had a profound impact on me. And I talked to him, and I said to this gentleman, I said, you know, um, I really love Suzanne. I want to marry Suzanne. And I said, but the problem is I've got some doubts. I really don't think I can do this thing. Plus, also have a fishing job in Alaska when school's over with. I had that out just in case. Had a fishing boat and I had a job there. So I so said, I really don't think I can do this thing. And he said, well, tell me the doubts. And it's like, great, here goes, I got him now. So I told him the three doubts, and they were wonderful doubts, and they were really good. And he was, he was on the other end of the phone. He said, you know, that's really not the issue, is it, Don? I said, wait, wait a minute, this isn't going the way that I planned it to go. Something's going wrong, finally. And he said, you know, the real issue is whether you want to love Suzanne or not. And it's like, well, that's really helpful. But he said the next words, and these words have really changed my life in, in a lot of radical ways. He said, but now it's time to grow up. And it's time to grow up and be a man. And I want you to hear those words carefully because there's a whole lot more involved in the process there has now been four years of my thinking through my father and my mother and my family and the absence and the silence. Uh, my father's the nicest guy you would ever meet and he's the most silent man you'd ever meet. But at that point, after I picked up the phone and, and brought myself back to, I realized that there was something about what he said that really struck me deeply. And what it was, two things as I, as I reflected on it, on it in the past. Two things. First of all, he was the first man that told me the truth. A. And B, he was involved with me. I had a lot of men 
in my education, in my church. My pastor was a good man. He always told me the truth, but I never really felt like he was for me. Here was a man who said, you really need to grow up, and there are a lot of things we need to talk about, but let, me, let it be known as you're struggling with these issues, I'm for you and I'm there. As a 28-year-old man, with all the absence, with my father, the only time I really ever saw my father was my three graduations. That's the only time I ever saw him, and I hated him because that's the only time he came. And I realized that I had a lot of absence and a lot of silence that was missing because I never had a father. And in my mind, it's very sad as a 28-year-old man that I had a man who finally came in and said, yes, I will be there, but I was only 28. The sad thing is, in many of you men's lives, you're X number of years, and some of you still don't have someone who has been that way in your life. A lot of what Larry was talking about with fatherhood and brotherhood. But that really set me on a course, because I'll tell you what I did. And I, I, I look back on this, and I think, was this Don Hudson? And I remember people laughing, people, girls that I dated before. They either cried or they laughed. Did this really happen? I quit my job the next day. I drove to Indiana. I got there at, at uh, midnight. I knocked on the door. Suzanne almost called the police. I went to see Suzanne. She almost called the police. She finally looked out the peephole and saw me. And the next day I took her out and said, I'm scared to death. I don't know what in the world I'm doing, but I want you to marry me. And I said, I know that you've already told. I know. They laughed too. <laughs> I still, I look back and I laugh myself. But I remember... Looking back on that, and I remember she had told three people. By the way, I don't know, Larry, if you remember this or Dan, but she told everybody in the program, 52 students. She told Larry, she told Dan. She, my name was smeared all over Winona Lake. I knew that it would be the end. But she also told everybody that if he asked me to marry him now, I'm not going to do it. But I remember as I sat there, and there was something, I don't know what it was, but there was something, as Larry's talked about being released, there was something that felt released that said, I'm scared to death, I don't know what I'm doing, I've never had a father who was significant, who was really there for me in a powerful way, I feel empty, I feel lonely, I feel like I have nothing to offer, I really do feel like an imposter, and one day of marriage will prove it to you. But I looked across at Suzanne, and I said, you can say no now, but I will ask you every week until you say yes, and then we'll get married. And then I cut my tongue out. I said, no, I didn't say that. But I remember, I don't say that as, um, I hope it doesn't sound boastful, because I hope you hear that the course I was going, and I'm being hypothetical now, and I could be very wrong, and I know this is a strong statement. The course that I was going... Uh, of course, next, I was studying for the ministry, but I was also going to work on a fishing boat. But the course that I was going was there was something terribly wrong. God's called me to do this. I'm successful in these fields. I'm successful in my field. And I really don't have what it takes. And I really saw myself by the time I was 45, absolutely, without any doubt, hypothetical, I know, without any doubt, though, I think in my mind of taking my life by the time I was 45. Because here was God who called me to be a man. And then He put me in a situation where I never experienced a man until I was 28 years old. And until that point, my thinking was, I just can't do it. So I'll be really successful. 
through graduate school, I'll spend five years and I'll sleep four hours a night and I'll teach and I'll work and I'll study and that's all I'll do. But I really can't make an impact where God created me to make an impact. But then the real transition in my life came two years ago as I've dealt with my father. It's been very, very easy for me to be furious with my father. And understand that I can point back to him and and, and show a hundred things that he's done wrong and that's what I did. So I never called my dad. I never invited him to anything when I got honors or awards or anything. I never let him know anything that went on. When I'd go visit him once a year, we'd sit down, we'd watch TV. He loves ball games. I couldn't stand ball games. I'd sit there, we wouldn't say anything, then I'd leave. And that would be our, our, our annual time together. But it struck me two years ago, and this was a real transition in my life, and I hope this really enfleshes and highlights some of the things that Larry has been saying. Up until that time, I really felt justified for not moving into significant areas of my life. I really felt like, look, someone comes and says, Don, everybody likes you, but nobody knows you. And my first response was, well, of course, look what I've been through. If your dad left you, if this happened to you, if you're not worthy, you wouldn't stay either. And you wouldn't let yourself be known either. So I was fully justified. But what really struck me two years ago was that I was doing the very same thing to my dad and to everybody else around me that I had experienced myself. And what was happening was I realized that until I felt my dad would be the man that he should be to me and until I felt like there was something recovered inside, until there was something good inside where I felt secure, I felt powerful, I felt like a man, until that was okay, I'd never move out. And I realized with my father I'd done the very same thing to him. And at that point there was a real transition because it I I understood that that was my excuse for not moving out. For not grabbing Suzanne and saying, we're going to get married. And to be honest with you, just this week, let me give you an idea and I'll close with this. I'll finish up with this. The first point is, of course, I speak out of my life. These points on maleness are not abstract concepts. These points on maleness are points that I've really struggled with deeply. And just this week, I've worried about, I'm in a Ph.D. program, I have 50 pages to write in the next three weeks. I've really worried, am I going to be able to do that? I have bills coming, am I going to be able to pay the bills? I have a new job, am I doing a good job in my new job? I'm worried about the finances. I'm worried about whether the cars are, I mean, I could go on and on. I'm worried about, what if all this work that I've channeled my life into, what if it really doesn't make a difference? What if I'm wasting my time? Those are areas that I worry about this week. I came home Thursday night. I flew in from Philadelphia. And I came home. And I was really, I was frustrated. I'd I'd been to Philadelphia the night before and I was really tired. I came in, I walked in and and supper wasn't ready. And I remember Suzanne said, well, we're going to grill some chicken and and, um, we want you to grill it. And at that point I felt like I can't even lift a finger. I can't do anything. Don't you dare ask me to grill chicken tonight when I've been to Philadelphia and I'm zonked. And I remembered at that point I just flared up. I didn't say a whole lot, but my, my nice way of saying something very angry and violating was, well, let's just all go out and let's go, let's go out to eat then. 
And at that point, I realized exactly what I was doing with my own wife, and I realized the impact that I had on her, and I realized how damaging that one nice little statement that I said is a very nice guy, how damaged that was to her, how damaging that was. And so as I talk about maleness, and one thing that I've always appreciated about some of the things that Larry says as he speaks on maleness is that in many ways he's not there. And I'm not there. And Thursday night, you know what what my first thought was on Thursday night? And I'm going to share 20 minutes with men about maleness and I just did what I did? See, that's the tension because in many ways God has asked me in spite of many things, in spite of all my absence, and can I put it this way? In spite of my silence, the silence that my father has put me through, in spite of my silence to move out. So in many ways, I speak from my own life. And secondly, and I'll just take 30 seconds here. Secondly, I speak from the scriptures. And what I mean by that is, and Larry just touched on it very briefly. I think we speak from the scriptures because the scriptures are relevant. We believe very passionately that God has given us answers. But the scriptures are also mysterious. And because of that mystery, we are invited into the ambiguity. We are invited to be creative as men. As he talked about Genesis 3, I agree with him on Genesis 2 and 3, but I could show you 15 scholars that disagree. It's left ambiguous. What do we do? God, somehow by the mysteriousness, invites us in to be creative. And And the last thing is he invites us in to be creative, into the mystery that doesn't put closure to what we're struggling with. That invites us to be men in powerful ways. So somehow he wants us to live between the tension of there are answers, but there are no answers. And in my life, I've always wanted the answers, and in some ways that's why I went for the scholarship, but I had no code over here with my wife, and yet I believe God has given me, and I hate this word, He's given me some victory. Can I use the word growth? I failed Thursday night, but as I look back on my life five years ago, because of the work that God has done, because of some significant men in my life, I'm different than I was five years ago. And so my last word is, there really is hope, but there's hope in forgiveness many times. Thank you. very much, Don. Some final thoughts to wrap our day up. Some final thoughts that are reflected in Don's life. Some final thoughts that will put no more closure on yours than is on his or mine or anybody else who wants to be honest. I would suggest several directions to think about. First, tell your story to someone. Tell your story to someone. And as you jot that down in your notes, most of you I see with your heads down, I presume you're writing. 
Will you all jot down the name of someone you'd like to tell your story to? Who's your brother? Who's your father? Someone you'd like to tell your story to. I'd like to tell about the time your dad left when you were five years old, about the fishing boat that you wanted to escape to, about how hard it was to ask Suzanne to marry you. Who do you want to tell your story to? Is there a name that comes to your mind? Somebody that you'd be willing to talk to about the assaults on your manhood? The grief over the absence of a father and the loss of a brother? Would you be willing to share embarrassing material? That doesn't seem at all manly, but because we still get manhood and macho mixed up. Maybe we need to share some embarrassing material at times. Somebody you wouldn't be afraid to weep with? What name comes to your mind? Somebody you'd feel willing to experience shame in the presence of someone by choice, not because you were shamed, but because you tell something shameful and you choose to feel shame in the presence of someone? Tell your story to someone. That's my first thought. And as you do so, what I think might happen, among other things, is you might begin to feel, we might, as we do this, might begin to feel the pain of living in a lonely world in a way that creates the opportunity to move. We're not going to move as men as long as we stay in the everyday life of responsibilities. We're not going to understand authentic manhood, what it means to courageously create, to speak out of a feeling of nothingness within. But as God spoke into the world and it was so, so he has called me to speak into the world, but I need to face the fact that it's a lonely place to speak, and there's not much inside of me, and I'm not sure if it's there. Can I share my emptiness with you? And somehow the fact of sharing it with a brother who looks at me, who listens to me, who gives me time, there's something strengthening about that. Tell your story to someone. My second thought, ask people who are close to you what you're like to live with. Ask people who are close to you what you're like to live with. Perhaps the six questions that we began the day with this morning might help. Ask people close to you what you're like to live with. And as you anticipate doing that, as you anticipate talking to your wife, to your child, to your roommate, perhaps you're single and living with a couple of guys, living by yourself, but you have a couple of friends... You go to your dad and you say, what's it like to have me for a son? As you ask people close to you, or people at least in your life, if not emotionally close, what you're like to live with, what, what feeling immediately comes into your stomach? Just jot that down for your own sake. What feeling do you feel? Excitement? Irritation? Threat? Fear? Anger? As you ask people what you're like to live with,
And if you don't take a simple, quick answer, but probe a bit, if you realize that most folks won't tell you until you make it clear you really want to know, and even then many won't, but as you do that, it'll put you in a situation, perhaps, where there's no code. Because your wife might say, well, I'm scared of you. Your wife might say, I've been bored with you for the last ten years. One of my real fears in the core of my gut is I'm afraid to be boring. And God has given me some ability as a teacher. And when I teach, I'm usually not terribly afraid of that. Sometimes I am. But I'm a whole lot more afraid to be boring when I'm out of the realm of my specific area of ability. I think fairly well, and I've thought a lot over the years, and i got a few things to say that some folks are willing to listen to. My books are selling okay. I guess my books aren't boring, people. But take away my books and take away my microphone and give me a real relationship and have me talk about me, and something inside says, I don't know about that. You really want to hear all these stories about me? A lot of you don't. Some of you are bored today. Just don't tell me that. I don't have the maturity to handle that right now. I'll just get mad at you and tell you to take a hike. shouldn't do that, though. Maybe it'll put you in a situation when you get feedback that, that you're kind of uninteresting. That, that you're basically passionless. I met a man a couple weeks ago that I didn't know before. We interacted for just five minutes, and I walked away, and I said, that guy is wickedly powerful. That was my sense to myself. But we got to know each other, and he said, what am I like to be around? I'd tell him that. What do you do at that point when a friend tells you that? I don't know either. It'll put you in a situation where there's no code. Thirdly, face your tendency to not speak. Don faced his tendency pattern of six months and then ending the relationship. Face your tendency to not speak. See what you tend to avoid dealing with. As most of us look at each other as men, have you noticed how socially we work hard to come across in a way that never, uh, never clearly reveals that we're really scared, we're really insecure? That's just not what our culture calls manly. And frankly, it's not manly. It's not manly to be controlled by your fear. It is manly to be fearful. It's not manly to be controlled by your fear. I thought one of the great illustrations we had of that, and some of you will differ on this, but it struck me this way, when I heard General Schwarzkopf during the war, and um, Barbara Walters interview, I think it was, and she said, were you scared? And his response was, you bet. But I moved in. And somehow that struck a nerve in the American hearts of men. Something inside of me said, yeah, I'm scared too, but I don't move sometimes. Where do I not move? Where, where am I scared, but let the fear control me? Where am I angry and let my anger control me? I can think of a couple of folks in my life now that my, if they were to say to, if you were to say to some of these folks, what does Larry think of you? And they'd say, he's so furious at me, he won't talk to me. 
I think of one man in particular that's true of. Where do we follow the code of false manhood? We don't speak. <clears throat> Not going to mess around with that one. No. Face your tendency to not speak. and Any areas come to mind after our whole day of thinking things through? Any area? Jot down an area that comes to mind. Can anybody do that? It's hard for some. It's easy for others. What's an area that comes to mind where you're afraid to speak? Where are you afraid to speak? Couldn't hear. Finances. Finances. All right. Fatherhood. Fatherhood. Emotions. emotions. Afraid to deal with the emotions that you feel in your soul. Afraid to face the impact of a father who's not there, perhaps, or maybe as a father to your own children. Afraid to deal with economic realities that sometimes are are scary, and in our culture, is such a test and a symbol of manhood. What an awful thing to be caught up in our culture that is just as wrong as it can be. The Bible talks about being transformed, not conformed to the way that our world thinks, but to be transformed by renewing our minds. We've all been following the news of Magic Johnson. And I presume, just as human beings, we all feel very badly for him as a person that he's contracted the HIV virus. And <clears throat> just as sports fans, we feel badly. And certainly we wish him the best and wish him well in all sorts of ways. But have you felt as I felt that that what he's doing with this and his message to the world now is safe sex. That's not the message. It's not the message of manhood. It's not the message of speaking into the world of women with respect and saying that I'm not going to move into your body until I've given you my soul. And when there's a covenant between you and me, then we'll have some fun in bed. But until then, I'm going to respect you. Safe sex isn't the message. I think he's wrong. Were you afraid to speak? Church. Church. Is that what I heard? Church? What does that mean? Did you elaborate? I didn't see who said it. What does that mean? You say church. You see some things that are going on that are wrong and you're afraid to say it. And you know that a lot of times the people that are speaking the most of the troublemakers and they're divisive. And you wonder, is that what I am? And Paul has some pretty unkind words to say about troublemakers in the local church. Whenever they see something wrong, they speak. A lot of men speak too much and they ought to shut up. So then the question is, is that a situation? Is something wrong in the church? Should you speak? Well, maybe so. It's hard to decide, isn't it? Well, be a man and make a decision. And maybe being a man there doesn't mean that you actually talk. It means that you energize your soul on behalf of God's purposes in your local church and make a decision as to how God best could use you and maybe how God best could use you is to say nothing for 20 years and be supportive of the pastor you think is making a mistake. That's a possibility too. Other times you ought to speak and the Lord came to divide, maybe you ought to divide the church. Who knows? You've got to decide before God, don't you? Face your tendency to not speak. Fourth,
Give up your demand to recover something outside of yourself. Give up your demand to recover something outside of yourself. Like fatherhood or brotherhood. I met with Don yesterday to chat about a few things and I showed him the questions, the overheads that I showed you this morning. The various questions to wife and son and daughter and friend and father. He read through my outline and looked at the various questions. I said, Don, what stands out to you as you read through the outline of my comments that I'm going to make to the men's group on Saturday? And he said, what hit me between the eyes is your question to the fathers because it's something which I didn't get a hold of in two years ago and it's such a radical shift for my mind even to still to make that rather than saying to your dad, Pop, you let me down. How about coming through for a change? To ask the question, well, is there anything in me that makes you feel like there's some value to you? You've been awful, but do you feel like I'm, I can accept you? I can actually forgive you for all the awful things you've done? I'm not overlooking what you've been, Dad. You've been wrong. You've been terrible. But my job isn't to tell you that. My job is to move towards you in spite of it. So you can't, you can't do that until you give up a demand that, that your dad be different. You can't do that until you give up a demand that some of your friends speak better as brothers than they already have. Give up, give up a demand to recover. Be very, very grateful if any recovery comes. Ask for it. Admit how bad you want it. You long for it. You cry over it. But don't require it. Fifth, Give up the demand to repair something inside. Don didn't get repaired in a way that freed him to ask Suzanne to marry him. He moved toward her as an unrepaired man. And all of us are going to have to move as unrepaired men. But we worked so hard at repairing the gentleman whose father sneered at him for playing dolls when he was five years old was a man who in my office 15 years ago, and I said to him, be a man and go toward that woman. It wasn't after two years of counseling where his soul got repaired. It was a choice to make in the middle of chaos. Chaos in his own soul. Emptiness in his own soul. Where'd the choice come from? It didn't come from a repaired intact sense of, now I have it together, now I can do it. When that's your sense, it's likely phony. It's got to be when you don't know what you're doing and you feel lost inside and you give up the demand of repairing. You see, the demand to be repaired before you move ultimately is a cop-out. Nothing's wrong with talking with a counselor about repairing internal things, but as long as you use that as a condition before you move, then it's a bad mistake. The difficulty, of course, is when you make a choice to demand repairing something inside, then you require other people to cooperate with the repair process. And you require your, your wife to be very supportive of all that you're going through and all the, all the struggles of life. You require your wife to be very, very sensitive and to be very supportive. And you feel like you're manfully struggling. I'm talking about myself here. I use the word you, but I'm talking about me. You feel like you manfully struggle with certain things. I struggle a lot. I'm a guy that sometimes gets depressed and somebody dubbed me years ago the prophet of doom and gloom. I'm an up kind of guy. 
And sometimes my struggles with all this feel so noble. And I feel like my wife should admire these marvelously rich philosophical spiritual struggles. And she ought to just look at me struggling and say, what a man. And what she usually says is, not again. I think deeply about a few things in my life. I hurt deeply. I feel deeply. And if I'm demanding that all of this deep stuff that I go through is a repair process that you should admire, you're not going to feel that you're in the presence of manhood when you're in the presence of me. Manhood doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean you don't struggle deeply. You don't hurt badly. You don't go through low seasons that are awful. But manhood means you don't require somebody to cooperate with the repair process. The demand to recover something outside, the demand to repair something inside, is a way to keep us from facing our need to live by courage, because there is no code. We end our day together by doing one or two more things. It's 4.15, 4.16. If ever there was a man who's lived in the face of the earth, his name was Jesus Christ. Study his life and look at what it's like. I was reading just last night the trial of our Lord we're told in Luke 22 and verse 63, we're told that he was mocked, he was beaten, he was assaulted, he was insulted. We're told at his trial they took a purple robe, probably an old military garment, and in sheer mockery and massive humiliation, they put this robe around this man. Do that to me and how would I respond? Laugh at me when I try to kiss a girl. And I hide for a couple years, maybe a lifetime. Embarrass me and I'll hate you. How did our Lord endure the mockery, the beating, the insult, the humiliation and remain intact and move into his world? God spoke and the world was created. Our Lord spoke in the name of the Father and my soul has been saved. How did this man manage to speak in the middle of all that? I would suggest that he had a clear sense of identity. He knew who he was. Do I know who I am? I'm a man. A Christian man. Trusted Christ to pay the price of my sins. And if I die, I'm going to go to heaven. That's where I'm going to meet Bill next in heaven. I'm a Christian man. But emphasize the word man there. Christian, yes, of course, that's crucial, that's foundational. But I'm a Christian man, not a Christian woman. Who am I? I'm a man with substance that has the power to pass on life. Our Lord had a clear sense of identity. He remained intact. Secondly, our Lord had a clear sense of mission. He knew what he was doing. He knew what his purpose is. Do I know what my purpose is? 
Do I know that my purpose really is to take who I am and uh, lay it down for the sake of others? Do I know what it is to have an energy within me that wants to connect with my wife and when she disappoints me and hurts me and enrages me and is terrified of me, do I realize what my mission is? Seems like mission impossible sometimes, but it's not. God would never call me to a mission impossible. The forces are against me, but I can move. He had a clear sense of mission. It's available to me. Last thing I'd say about our Lord, and of course we could spend ten days... But the last thing I'd say for now about our Lord was this. Not only did he have a clear sense of identity, he knew who he was. Not only a clear sense of mission, he knew what he was doing. But thirdly, he had an awareness of how bad things were, and he was willing to expend his life to respond to the situation. Remember, as he was carrying his cross, the women were crying, and our Lord called out and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves. Do you know what's coming on your land do you know how bad things are? You look at me and you see the ultimate tragedy. No, no, no. This is all part of the sovereign counsel of God. The real tragedy is look around you. And I'm going to go to the cross because I'm going to deal with the judgment that you all deserve. I'll take it on myself so you can go free. Our Lord knew who he was. He knew what he was doing. He faced how bad things were and he said, I'm going to do what I can. In his case, it was everything. In my case, it's a bit less. But it's something. As men, we need to, we need to move. I'm going to read something to you. Something I wrote six months ago. Don't take notes on this. I'm going to read it too quickly for you to write anything down. But just see if some of this doesn't summarize what I've talked about today. Six months ago, as I began, actually it was May 22nd, I have this paper dated. On May 22nd, I um, went to bed at midnight, I remember couldn't sleep, and I was thinking about manhood, and I said, let me just start thinking about the topic and write out whatever I feel like saying. This is unedited, it's raw, it's primitive. If you get bored in the middle of it, I can handle it. I won't look up. When I think of manhood, two things come quickly to mind. The unthreatened stability of a deep center point and courageous involvement that is passionately moving in a called direction. Comments on the first thing, stability, a deep center point. When there is nothing else, when no food for one's soul is coming in, when you see no source anywhere for the food you want, and you rage at the world until you're exhausted, crying out that it's too much, when you have no energy left to care about another person, and you know you feel cold, even bitter, toward your wife, your children, parents, friends, God, and you wish you didn't, when you feel dangerous, ugly, like poison, when you really believe that no one wants or could want what you have to offer, when you have to cut out who you really are and what you feel is most unique about you in order to survive with anyone else, when you once more risk offering yourself and you're hated again or worse, you fail and are ignored, when caring about someone else seems an intolerable burden, an offense against injustice, an unfair demand from an uncaring God, when it seems so deeply right that someone, anyone, should care about you in a way that relieves you of responsibility to care about anyone else, 
When you realize that God's love is relentlessly demanding, that it ties you down to what feels like death, that when it's embraced, you must care, and therefore invite even more sorrow into your deepest parts, and when you hate God for loving you that way, when there's nothing left of you except ugliness that no one, not even yourself, can stand, then you hang on. You simply do like a robot. You brush your teeth, you shave, you go to work. Because somehow you still hope that maybe you exist. That maybe there's something within you that can weather the storm. That maybe it matters whether you exist and hang on. That maybe somebody cares. So you do and you hope and things get worse. Then you do and you hope some more. And finally, one moment comes when you feel unthreatened where before you felt furious and scared and you feel the beginnings of an identity that was designed to give in order to be and you realize that you are in a way that nothing can shake. After years of this cycle, others feel aware of your presence. Your words sound like something. People listen and feel uncomfortable, sometimes angry, but respectful and drawn to something big. For your part, you feel only grateful and confident that you will utterly fail were it not for grace. Perhaps that's the stability that comes from a quietly forming and emerging center point. Second concept, courageous involvement. Movement toward a passionate calling. When you look in every direction and can only see problems about which you can do nothing, when every reason to move, to try to help, to reach out, to pursue a goal, any goal is stripped away, when it makes no sense to do anything at all because you realize how miserably and totally you fail at everything, when you realize that the only objective in the entire world that cooperates with the pursuer as it is pursued is the knowledge of the holy, when you sense clearly that every other objective has competing power of its own for which you're no match, when every time you move or speak, someone misunderstands, when your wife and friends react to your passion and effort, not with appreciation, but with scorn, or worse, disdainful curiosity. When the evidence of your weakness and incompetence and selfishness is maddeningly painful for you, to the point where pride suffers with excruciating agony as it receives one more death blow, but not the last. When it's obvious you can do nothing of value for yourself or anyone else, when all your achievements become revealed as dust, and hopelessly stained with an immoral self, when everything in you is angrily paralyzed into manipulative passivity, and then goes beyond that into enraged inaction, intended to provide a haven for your soul, but it doesn't work. You end up moving a little, and every time you do, your soul dies again. And when you don't move, you feel even worse in the darkness of utter isolation. Then, you do something kind. Because God's only plan for giving a sense of internal life is for you to give something away when you feel that you have nothing to give. You're kind, and you trust intuitively, not reasonably. And at some point, after what feels like a futile wait, you find that a hint of energy seeps out of your soul toward another. It feels different. You know it hasn't been this way before, not much, perhaps never. You feel clean. And you wonder if this isn't what life feels like. And it all blows up in your face and you sink the new lows. You rage and scream and cry and quit and retreat into sin just to ease the pain and that sense of cosmic chicanery makes the sin seem reasonable, almost noble. Then, when the pain is again intolerable, when you would give your very soul for one more taste of life but you realize you're shut up to God and that He demands surrender, not of your soul but of your determination, 
you choose, sheepishly, to be kind in the trust. And a little energy is felt flowing out of you toward others, not the anticipated energy flowing into you. Give up the demand of fatherhood and brotherhood. After years of this cycle, you become aware of spontaneous gratitude that God would tolerate for even one second a self-centered, arrogant wretch like you. But surprisingly, that self-awareness does not discourage you because your focus is more on your gratitude and even more on the object of your gratitude than on your wretchedness. And Christ, for a few exquisite moments, becomes everything. And you intuitively sense with joy that others occasionally feel touched by you. You notice, as a spectator would, the passion with which you speak. You find yourself wanting to do something rather than just doing, perhaps to repair clocks, to talk to your wife for her sake, to be friendly to a waitress, to start a business, to clean your desk, to spend time with your son, to buy a gift for your daughter for no reason, to try your hand at cooking, to provide better for your family to witness, to make decisions, to take hold of your life on behalf of God, His design, His glory, His people, a sense of calling develops that you've not known before. You begin to worship a God who stays involved with you at the cost of his own broken heart. His ongoing suffering over you, a God who gives you something to do and arranges things so that you want to do it. Perhaps that's the forward movement that develops momentum toward a calling to be a certain kind of person and to do something for God and others that's passionate. And then one day you die. A stable, authentic man who has moved with passion into his world, then you hear the most stable, passionate voice in all the world say, well done. And you know you're home with your heavenly Father, whom you adore and trust, and with a divine brother, whom you worship, and with whom you play, and you break into an eternal smile. Authentic manhood. Martin Luther knew something about that. He was in situations where all he could do was cling to what's true. Gentlemen, I want you to indulge me for the last three minutes of our conference. Volney will come up, make a few closing announcements, and we'll be dismissed. Will you indulge me? There's something I want to do, and just because I want to do it, I'm going to courageously speak. I'm going to ask you all, if you will, to sing with me. Nothing's better than a group of men singing together a song that most of you know that speaks about a lot of what we've been talking about today. Will you stand with me? Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.